Hey, good morning. How many of you have been around in the last couple weeks? You know, I think there's lots of adjectives and things that we could use to describe the last couple weeks, wouldn't you? I would just say it this way. I think this is the simple way of just saying, God is doing something. <laughs> you know what I... I, I, I want to say that it, that doesn't mean that God hasn't always been doing stuff, but these last few weeks have just been so sweet and so precious in our, our community. And you guys know that God is also doing some incredible things outside of just this church community. And I was thinking and I was praying about that because I, I would consider myself, are you ready for this? I would consider myself a cautious charismatic. <laughs> and I, I, you know, you laugh and I can laugh about it too, but here's the real deal. The way that I'm wired is sometimes I'm a little pessimistic. Anybody relate with that? Oh, cool, I'm not alone. Sometimes I'm a little reserved and I'm a little bit unsure. And so I've been praying through, God, I want to be part of the things that you are doing. If there are walls that I have built or have been put up in my life that are, are preventing me from that, I, I don't want to live that way. That's one of the things I want God to set me from. Anybody relate with that? Okay, good, I can continue without sweating in my armpits and being nervous about telling you the truth. <laughs> and I feel like compelled to tell you a couple things that I feel like God has spoken to me because I feel like it might relate to a couple people in here. I feel like God has been telling me just to move forward and to keep in mind a couple things. And the first one is something that, that sounds a little bit heavy, but I think it's something for all of us. And it's that when you want to walk into the presence of God, you can't take sin with you. That, that sin is something that needs to be repented of. It needs to be handed over and submitted to God. And so often when we, we want to walk in things, we want to run full speed ahead and we don't pause and think, you know what? There are things in my life that are preventing me from receiving all that God has for me. The second thing I, I feel like God has put on my heart and reminded me of this week is, is simple. is You don't have to be pessimistic and you don't have to be cautious because in the midst of a move of God's spirit, we have something called God's word. Did you know that? And that when we feel like, man, is this, exact, is this what God has for us? Is this a move of God? God has already given us the blueprint for how he works and what his character is. And if we know God's word, we don't have to be afraid. We can walk right into it and we can receive what God has for us. And so this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to gather together like we've already done. We're going to sing our praise to the Lord and we're going to jump into God's word. Because I think as God's word shapes us, we become, become people who see God's spirit at work, and we get to walk right in it. Are you excited about that? Yeah. So let's do it together. Before we do, I, I want to tell you, if you're new with us and you're thinking, wow, this guy is way too young and handsome to be the senior pastor of this church. <laughs> you're right. Um, Danny uh, has this opportunity. He's been uh, called away to Hawaii. Um, oh, Yeah. You know, it actually, in all seriousness, a, a very close mentor and, and spiritual father figure in his life is kind of reaching the last days of his life. And so he invited Danny to come. And actually, right this moment, I think he's actually speaking at a church or will be very soon. And so um, why don't we just pause and let's, um, let's pray for him. And then we're going to set sail in James chapter 4. God, thank you. Thank you for the people that you put in our lives, the people who speak truth and wisdom who pull us aside and point out the path that we're supposed to be walking on, the ones who hold us to account and the ones who point us in your direction. And we're so thankful that, that Danny has that person and had that person in his life and continues to have people like that. 
as he leads us. We're so thankful for the people who shaped him into the leader that he is. And so God, as he has this sweet time, this emotional time, connecting with someone who made an enormous impact in his life, we just pray peace and grace over him. I just pray the, the permission to feel the emotions that are stirred up. And God, we're so grateful that as those who know you enter their last days, that they don't enter them without hope. They enter them knowing that the gates will swing wide and you will welcome them with open arms. And so, God, thank you. Thank you for the lives of the faithful. We love you. We ask that you would be with him and you would be with us as we proclaim your word this morning. Amen. 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 Well, this morning we're going to be in James chapter 4. We're just going to jump in and see how far we get. We're under no uh, limitations or restraints on, on how far we have to get. But I'm excited about this morning's passage, and this morning's passage is primarily about repentance. It's not always a topic that's going to get a lot of laughs and a lot of joy in the room, but it's a topic that is so necessary for us to receive what God has for us. And so I'm excited. I think the best way to introduce you to James chapter 4 is to read it. So if you have a, a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it. If you don't have a Bible and you're living in 2023 digital land, we got it on the screen for you. So here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So James is writing to a church community and they're trying to figure out how do we live together? You ever notice that when you're with people, even like one person, your spouse, and you're with them long enough, you realize your personalities don't always jive and there's some grinding that needs to happen? James recognizes this to be true and says, as you gather as a church community, there are quarrels and fights among you. And what causes them? This is what he says. Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's really interesting what's going on here and what James is saying. Because he's saying at the core of the issues that people have in a church community as they're trying to re find unity and cohesion, cohesion of the, as they follow the Lord as disciples is really just boiled down to this. It's that you and me, we have desires in our heart. Is that not true? We have desires for, uh, for tangible things, possessions. We have a desire for relationship and intimacy. We have desire for status and wealth. These are all things that we have. And I think if we had to boil it down, this is what James is saying, that the core root of quarrels and fights among us are because we have desires in our heart, and when we do not submit them to God, they begin to run rampant. They become a spark that turns into a wildfire, and they go crazy. And he says that when you have these desires, and they are unmet for long enough and unsubmitted to the Lord, you will go to great lengths, even lengths like murder. These two words in Greek, these passions and desires, is actually a really interesting word. It's the word in Greek, hedonon, which is literally our word for hedonism. Now, if you're not familiar with the word hedonism, you are 100% familiar with the concept because you are living in it. You are living in a, a hedonistic culture that says 
pain should be done away with and pleasure should be the primary goal and desire of our whole life. How many of you would say that you know people and if you said, hey, what's the whole point of your life? They would say, to be happy. Anybody? That is the hedonistic culture, and hedonism means that we just want to consume and consume and consume desire and pleasure at all costs because that is the purpose in our life. And so we have phrases in our culture like this, if it feels good, do it. Now, if you've ever been on that hamster wheel before, you know it is very difficult to get off. It's this consume, consume, consume. If it feels good, do it. If it felt good, do more of it next time because it will feel even better. And so you get into this nasty lifestyle cycle that is difficult to exit. And I was thinking about this because James is about to tell us maybe a different type of choice we can make to give our life purpose and meaning. But what he's going to say is that you can't just do it passively. You have to walk into it, and there are actual things you have to do. We're going to explore it in a second, but I want to make this point. I think if you default to nothing, like if you just decide, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to live my life and see what happens, what will happen is the culture will define you. The culture will get in you, and the world will begin to tell you who you are and why you're here and what your purpose in life is and what you should do with your life. That is the default that will happen if you just remain passive. And so James says that the reason we don't get what we desire is kind of multitude of reasons, but the main reason is because we desire things for ourselves, and we don't desire to ask God, how can we become more like Jesus? God, can you give me the things that would actually benefit me deeply, even if they are painful and even if they are difficult. Uh, in our midweek study, Peter keeps saying that trials will come. He keeps saying they're coming whether you like it or not. You know, our, our world would say, when you see a trial coming a mile away, you should get off on an exit ramp and you should find a different road because you should not be part of pain. You should not be part of trials. Do you know what I'm talking about? A terrible example is just this, that we are the moment and the time in all of human history that created this thing called the opioid epidemic. And what's at the core of that? In, in one little thing, full pleasure, exit pain, or so we think. And as that cycle continues, what is the end result? It is actually the ultimate destruction and the ultimate pain of all, is it not? And so I was thinking about this because James has a handful of things that he wants to tell us that we should consider when making decisions about our desires. And so I, I made a slide. If we could put the first one up on the screen, we'll just go kind of point by point. The first thing I think we should ask ourselves if there is a desire of our heart that we don't have is this. Do I have a lack of contentment in what God has already given me? So is my desire for the next purchase or the next thing I want to bring into my life because deep down I have a discontentment and my thought is if I just got one more thing, I would be more content. The second thing is this that I think we need to ask ourselves. Is my desire rooted in a need to compare or compete against, against someone else? So maybe it's in a social circle. Maybe it's in a, a work environment where you're thinking like, wow, my coworker just got a brand new car and it looks really good. 
if I could just get a car like that or better, then I would really be competing. So it was our motivation of our heart to compete or compare to other people. The third thing I think James invites us to ask is this. Have I brought my desire before God and asked him for it at all? This is what one of the things he says. He says in verse 2 that you don't have because you didn't even ask. How often do we have a desire of our heart, even something that's wholesome and beautiful, and we feel like it's something that, that maybe God put there, and we realize over the course of time that we never even asked? And so James says one of the things you should consider when you have a desire of your heart is, have you brought it before the Lord and asked him for it? And the fourth question I think we can ask ourselves is this, is my desire rooted in wanting personal pleasure for its own sake? This is what James says, that you don't receive because you ask wrongly. Because the motivation of your heart is just simply that I want this thing because it's going to make me feel good. Not, I want this thing because by it, God is going to shape character in me. God is going to shape me to be the person he created me to be. Verse 4 continues, and it says these strong words. You adulterous people. I got, a, I got one response from that. <laughs> ah, is right. You adulterous people, James is taking this image that's like deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Here's the image. It's that God is, uh, is the husband and his people, the Israelites, are his bride. And the image is that as they live their life with him, he's laid out uh, his law, he's given them grace and provision of all kinds, and when they disobey, when they take advantage of his grace and his love and his forgiveness, this image comes out through the voices of the prophets, and it says, you're like adulterous people. You continue to take advantage and cheat on God who has given you everything you need. And so James uses this sharp language to get everyone's attention. Does it have your attention? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, before I talk about friendship in the biblical sense, I want to talk about friendship in the hedonistic worldview that we live in. Remember I said that we are kind of the consumerist culture that just consumes things for its own sake? Anybody on Facebook? How many friends you guys got on Facebook? Hundreds? Some of you got thousands, right? I remember this moment when this dawned on me about 10 years ago. I was doing youth ministry, and I um, was just kind of figuring out social media. By the way, if you have Facebook, every young person in the room just rolled their eyes because I don't know if you know, but Facebook is old and dated and nobody uses that if you're under 25 or 30. But here's the idea. I, I remember this realization that came to me that these students would have these Instagram and Facebook profiles and they would have thousands of friends and followers and then you would get to know them and you know what you would find? Some of the loneliest people that you've ever met. Why is that? It's because if we do nothing and we just live our life, by default, the world is going to shape us. And how does the world shape us? That people are things to be consumed if they have something to offer us. Like, even if the offer is just, I can click a button and now you're considered my friend, even though I don't even know you. 
And so you could amass thousands of friends and not have a single friend. Does that make sense? Is it ringing true? How many, um, by, just out of curiosity, how many friends would you have on Facebook if the only people that could really be your friends were your true friends? Two? Three, maybe? If you're really introverted like me, like maybe one and a half, two sometimes if you round up, right? And so this is the world that we live in. But this is, I think, what James is saying. He is using this word for friend that is describing an intimate friendship. It's describing two people who share a worldview, who share purpose and mission and meaning for what does my life mean? We are bonded by this shared mutual understanding of what life is all about. And not only that, but that has led into depth of conversation. I know you and you know me. I know your strengths and your weaknesses. I know what you struggle with. I've been praying into your life and you have been doing the same for me. And it is a deep spiritual bond. And so with that in mind, this is what he says. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Why is that? It's because to be a friend to God for James is to say, I have analyzed the values of the world, and I have decided I agree with them. And I have submitted myself to the world to shape me into the person that I want to be. And James says, if that is who you are and where you've come from, you have become an enemy to God. It's very strong language. Why is that? Why are you an enemy to God? Well, James just answers the question for us. He says this in verse 5. Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. This is why you're an enemy to God if you're a friend to the world. It's because God created you in his image and the spirit within you rightfully belongs to him. It is his, and it only finds its meaning, it only finds its value, its true purpose in him. And so when you hand it over to anything or anyone other than him, you are saying the thing that God created, the, God, the thing that God created in you to follow him and to know him and have an intimate relationship with him, that you would just take that and hand it to somebody else, God is saying that makes you an enemy of God. Very strong words. So I was thinking this week a bit about this verse because there's some questions I have that I wrote down in my study that James doesn't answer. Because this is all that James says. He says if you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy to God. But James doesn't tell us what our relationship to the world should be. All he says is that it shouldn't be friendly. Does that make sense? And so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about all the different options for words that we have when we talk about relationships or connections. So I was thinking some of the options, I, I think I even made a slide for this. Um, so what should our relationship? Should we be enemies, acquaintances, friends? So let's just go one by one. I was thinking, should we be an enemy to the world? When I think enemy, I think words like we should be hostile towards we should position ourselves against the things of the world. Sometimes people describe people like this as holier than thou, like I'm better than the world, I'm beyond the world. Some of the uh, movements I think of, are you familiar with the Desert Fathers? Have you heard of these people? 
they, they existed throughout all of Christian history, but more or less they look around and they think like, the world is so bankrupt and terrible, here's my plan. I'm just going to move out into the desert all by myself for the rest of my life with a Bible. That's what they did. Why? Because they perceived that their position was to be an enemy to the world. And I don't think that's what God calls us to. And I was thinking, what about this idea of a Facebook friend, so more of an acquaintance? And what is an acquaintance? I don't really know you. Maybe you're kind of on the periphery of a friend group I sometimes hang out with, and so I kind of know you. There's a little bit of familiarity. Every now and then I see you, and it's cordial. And I was thinking, maybe we're called to be acquaintances to the world. But I think that's not what God called us to either, because that's too passive. And so this is what I came up with. This is, I think, what the scripture points to. What is our relationship to the world? Our relationship is that we are called to be missionaries to the world. What is a, a missionary? A missionary is someone who takes a call of God upon their life and they go to a place intentionally, on purpose, with a purpose, to bring light and encouragement to dark places, to bring the good news of Jesus to people who don't know it, to bring the good news of uh, Jesus to people who need encouragement. So if you're thinking, what does this mean for me? Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's a place you volunteer or, or a friend group that you're a part of. I want to encourage you to set some time aside in the coming days and say, God, how can I be a missionary in those places? Maybe you're just in a season of life where you checked off every single one of those boxes. Take some time and ask God, God, what would you have me do? How can you use the gifts that you've given me, the abilities, the skills, the personality to speak truth and hope and encouragement into the places that I go into? The next section, verses 6 through 10, I think is, um, is kind of the, the turning point of this entire chunk of the book of James. You know, this chapter uh, comes across to me on first reading as kind of heavy. Would you agree so far? It just seems like, wow, I just drank from a fire hose a little bit. And I was thinking about this because... This next chunk on first blush is going to seem very heavy, but I want to tell you where I think it's coming from. I think James chapter 4, the next handful of verses, is coming in context to what we just read. And here's what we just read. Some of you and some of us have been enemies of God by befriending the world. Maybe I can just jump in the deep end first and tell you guilty. Various times, various points. And I think that none of us could stand before God and say, I never befriend the world. I never accept what the world says. I, I never play into the fear-mongering of the news. I never think that somehow my identity is wrapped up in the world. I think all of us, in some degree, are works in progress, but we are guilty. Would you agree? Anybody want to raise their hand and say, yeah, me, guilty? Oh, some of you. Well... And so I think the next chunk is going to come across as super heavy, but it's not heavy at all. It's actually the greatest news of the entire Bible, because here's what it is. It's if you find yourself as an enemy of God or opposed to God in any way, James wants you to know these words are for you. Verse 6, but he, being God, gives grace. Anybody want to stamp that with an Amen. We, God knows we need it, and we know we need it. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And everyone said, wah, wah, wah. This is what James says. You find yourself opposed or contrary to God. And by the way, if you're not picking it up, I, I just want to say it in plain language. Even the most mature, long-standing follower of Jesus finds themselves in that position from time to time. And James says, this is what you should do. Not a one-time thing, but this should be a lifestyle. This should be a discipline that is baked into who you are and what you do. If you want to be a friend of God, it requires laying down and humbling yourself before him. And then he lays out what that means and what you actually do. Don't you love the, the 10 easy steps for beginners? Like, what do I actually do? So he moves beyond just like this theoretical, philosophical thing, and he says, here's what you should do. The first thing he says is that you should submit yourselves to God. The word submit it literally means the same thing as subordinate. I like to say it this way, that when God made us, he made a throne in our heart. And there is only one throne, and whoever sits on it is who gets to rule our life and determine the outcome and the direction of our life. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes, without knowing it, we casually kind of remove God and we sit on it ourselves. And when we do that, we say, I got this, God. Oh, I've been in this situation before. I don't need your help. I don't need to pray or consult somebody wise because I've done this before. I got this one. I'll consult you when life gets hard. And slowly we find ourselves creeping and then seated on the throne of our heart. And I think this is what James is saying. When you submit yourselves to God, you recognize I have been sitting on the throne of my own heart and the only direction I can take this thing in if I'm the one driving the ship is not going to be good. And it's intentionally standing up getting off and inviting God back into his proper position as the king of your life. That's the first thing. The second thing he says is that you should resist the devil and he will flee from you. I went on uh, kind of a long rabbit trail with resist the devil, and this is where I came to. It's actually uh, rooted in a military word, and it's really cool. You want to hear the illustration? The illustration that I read is, is this. It, it usually was like a river in a valley, and the opposing army was on the other side, but it could literally be a line that's drawn in the sand. And to resist something is to stand and face it head on and literally say, if you come on this side, you are in enemy territory and you can expect a fight. If you try to come over here, I'm going to take that as an act of hostility and I'm going to react with force. And I think what James would say is you don't act with the force that you have. You act with the force that God has given you to fight back. And you know what it says? When you do that, you say, if you come looking for a fight, I'll give it to you. My back is not turned to you. I'm face on, and if you come for a fight, I'll fight you with the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, the devil flees. The word means, like, as fast as possible, gets out of dodge. Not like takes a few steps back with their arms crossed and is looking for you to make another mistake. It's full retreat mode to figure out what to do next. So James says, do that. The third thing is this, that you should draw near to God. 
Now, I think sometimes we read these phrases and we um, kind of immediately slip into Christianese, like, I've read the Bible before, draw near to God. That's great. We sing that. But what that means to somebody who grew up in a Jewish culture is to come into the presence of God. And if you were Jewish in the first century, that is sketchy business because to come into the presence of the holy, mighty God is dangerous and scary to you. And this is what James is saying. I think this is one of the most beautiful things of chapter 4. In a time where you find yourself opposed to God, maybe sin has crept in and began to take control of your life, and you're deciding, you know what, I, I, I want my life given back to God. I want to resubmit myself to him. I want to tell the devil he's got to go. He says, in the process, when you are excising sin out of your life by the Holy, of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are still welcome in the presence of God. Isn't that awesome? It doesn't say you got to get all your stuff figured out. you got to go to a, a ton of uh, counseling sessions and read your Bible front to back three times and say this prayer 18 times, and then you'll be welcome in God's presence. It says in the middle of your struggle to get sin out of your life, you're welcome. Draw near to God, not in shame, because that's often what we do. Would you agree? So often as followers of Jesus, sin comes in our life, and then when we recognize it, we're so embarrassed and we're so ashamed of ourselves that we think like, oh God, I am so filthy and rotten. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a quiet afternoon to get right before I try to come back in your presence. And James says the opposite. He says, in your condition, draw near to him. He then says this, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. These are uh, words that are, are rooted in kind of the Old Testament temple language. And the, the idea is that you would be made clean. It's, a, it's a, a kind of a ritualistic performance of saying, you know what, I, I'm going to take a shower or get dressed in fresh clothes, and I'm going to say, this marks a brand new start. This is the, the Old Testament washing of your hands so that your hands are clean of all the things that you have done. It, it's this thing that says, I am drawing a line and I'm crossing it. Because who I was before, I am saying no more. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. These words seem so heavy-duty to me. To be wretched. Anybody use that word in their own thought language? Man, you are so wretched. I literally thought if you talk like that, you're probably 70-plus. But Be wretched, mourn, and weep. These are difficult words to hear, but this is what James is saying. He's saying, come to grips with how devastating your sin is, even the little ones. There is a tidal wave effect. Sin, when it gets a hold of you, it wreaks havoc in you and all the people around you. And when you come to actually realize that in the eyes of God and how God sees sin, do you know what that does? It breaks his heart. And when you truly know that, here's your reaction, be wretched mourn and weep. The image is your forehead pressed against the ground. I, I can't believe that sin had taken hold of me. God, that's not what you desire. It's not who you called me to be. All of these things, I think, are, are summarized in what he says last. He says, humble yourself. All of these things combined is the humbling before God. Now, are you ready for the good news? When all of those things happen, look at verse 10. 
when you have humbled yourself, when you are a crying, weeping ball on the ground, feeling the weight of the world upon you, guess what happens? In that moment, when you recognize the power of your sin and what it has done to you and everyone around you, it says that God leans down, picks you up on your feet, and not only that, he exalts you. That's the good news. That your sin doesn't get to rule over you. And even in the realization of your sin, when it brings you and it reduces you into a pile of tears and devastation on the ground, it's in that moment that you get to experience God as the one who says, you've humbled yourself and now I exalt you. If you're looking for kind of a summary of this chunk, this is what I came up with. I just wrote for my own notes that repentance is an invitation to receive a gift of grace. So often we think of repentance and we think like, oh. To be honest, when I think of repentance, sometimes the first image I get is Catholic confession. And I don't know where you come from, but when I think that, what I think of is like, oh, heavy and like a slow walk to now I got to proclaim all my sins. I don't want to speak down to it because the Bible does speak that we should, we should confess our sins to one another in the right circumstances. But sometimes I think of it, and I think of it as like this dutiful thing to unload all this baggage so that I could get right with God. But I, I think what James is saying is that repentance is actually this wonderful opportunity for you to experience how graceful God is. It's an ongoing discipline. Ongoing meaning it's day by day. It's not like you pray once for repentance and then you're just good. It's this invitation to repent often, often, often. So it's an ongoing discipline of coming to grips with our sin and then being met with God's unmerited grace. Unmerited because you don't deserve it. But he gives it anyways. People who recognize their sin, James said, says, should not speak evil against one another. This is verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, and he is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I think this is what James is saying. He's saying when you come to grips with your own sin, the first thing you should recognize is you have no business judging someone else for theirs. How often... Can we fall prey into feeling like in the competition or the hierarchy of Christian maturity, I am high enough where I should get to turn and judge someone else for their sin? James says absolutely none of that, and here's why. Because there's only one person who gets to sit on the judge's seat, and it's not you. It's God. And so I think he lays out three things for us. The first one is this. To slander or to speak evil of someone is to assume the role of judge, and it's not your role to assume. That when you do that, literally what you're doing is you're taking on the task that only belongs to God, and that is a dangerous territory to be in. The second thing he says is that when you slander or speak evil of a brother or sister, you are literally breaking the law as you do it. As you judge someone else, you're breaking the law that you're claiming that you are enforcing. And the third thing he says is this, that to assume the place of the judge is being so caught up in judging others that you've forgotten that God actually called you to be a doer of the law and not a judge of it. Looking at the time, and I want to leave some room because I, I feel really 
really convicted this week, I, I think in my own life, and I, I feel like this might extend to some of you. I want to invite the, the worship team to come back. And I want to just repeat something that I feel like has been a theme for me in the last few days. It's that this process of repentance is a discipline. It's not like you put it on your calendar and every Friday at noon, I oh, I should take my lunch break to repent a little bit. It's an ongoing heart posture where we are so intimately connected with God where every time a, a sinful thought or something comes up that we just submit it to God. That we recognize how devastating sin is to God. And then we find out this, that upon humbling ourselves, God's not going to leave you on the ground. He's going to lift you to your feet and exalt you. And so I want to invite you, maybe it's just in the seat where you're at, I want to invite you just to get right with God to start the process this morning. Maybe it's something that's entered your life and you already know it. Maybe it's a sin that you've been thinking, man, that's part of my life. It's gotten a hold of me. I've been trying to, to keep it as part of my life and follow God at the same time, and I know it's not working. I'm only fooling myself. Maybe it's something heavy that you've carried for a long time, and you just want, to want freedom from that. Maybe you're in a place where you're like, you know what, I don't feel like I've been outwardly sinning a ton, and so I just want to take this time and pray, God, would you reveal the things in my heart that need repenting of? The last thing I would invite you to do is to come forward. Some of you might feel the, the pressure of the Spirit kind of nudging you forward, and I, I want to invite our, our staff to come up to the altar. If you'd like to pray with somebody, if you would like to just, you know, unload some baggage, I want to tell you that the, the staff that are praying up here, they are um, people who will hold in confidence the things you say. So if you're feeling I'm like, man, I, I just feel so compelled by God to say something and tell someone, and you're thinking, I hope it doesn't get out, I can tell you with assurance that it won't. So I want to invite the staff, and as they do, I want to read these words over you. But he gives more grace. More grace than you've experienced before. More grace than you thought possible. He gives grace, grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And I'm so glad James didn't stop there. Because he says when we're faithful to do those things that he's called us to do, God will exalt you. I want to invite you to come if you would like to pray.
you're singing that song, it's kind of becoming an anthem for the morning. Would you agree? I just felt like God was saying loud and clear that it is not well with your soul for any reason except for what he has done. I was sitting over here and Jack graciously came and prayed over me. And as he did, I I felt like God put this scripture on my heart to share with you. This comes from Matthew chapter 11, and these are Jesus' words. I think they're Jesus' words to a large group of people, and I think they're Jesus' words to you. He says this in chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. In me you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's been a theme in my prayer life in the last few months, but just simply this. I I think we talk to ourselves and maybe the worst judge of all is the judge seat that we sit on when we judge ourselves. And I want you to know that the the voice of God, according to Jesus, is a gentle one. It's not a how dare you or what have you done this time. It's come to me. Come to me. Come to me and you will find rest. So God, that's what we do. We come to you. We ask that you would remind us daily that it is an invitation to come and come and come and come and never stop coming. God, thank you that you are a fountain of living water. It never runs dry. There is always water for us in our thirst. God, would you convict us? Would you uh, remind us? Would you whisper on our ear when we try to take control of our own lives? That we wouldn't go down long paths and seasons of trying to wrestle control from you. God, we love you. We thank you that you invite us to come, that you will give us rest for our souls. And so that's what we do. We ask that you would give us rest. We repent of the things that we've picked up and we've done that we were never meant to. God, we don't lash or beat ourselves up for for it. We just hand it over to you and we ask for forgiveness today. We ask that as we empty ourselves, we would walk out fresh and light and ready to bring the message of your kingdom to the world around us. God, we love you. Thank you that we get to do this together, that we're not in these fights alone, but we can bear one another's burdens and we can hand them off to you for your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Amen. As we dismiss, I I just want to let you know that these altars are always open to you. That's what they're here for. So if if you'd like prayer, if you'd like prayer for our relationship or or something going on in your life, you are always welcome here. God is doing something amazing. I want to encourage you to plug in and get involved. I think there's a tremendous power that happens when we do it together. And so I just send you on your way. May God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. Amen.